I mean real change. Lasting change. You see, this only happens in the valley we call uncomfortable. Was it not so strongly just seen in this video? That one person decides that the status quo is not worth it anymore and they risk much and they become deeply uncomfortable because something more is worth it. And if that is true when it comes to justice, and if that is true when it comes to politics, think this morning, you who gather here and you watching online, think for a moment when it's not a human being who says no more. But it is God himself who says, I have had enough. See, when the living God of heaven and earth says, I'm done. When he begins a new thing, everything gets uncomfortable. When the living God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, says, I cannot and I will not take it any longer. Life, of course, is given. But all that was cherished and all that was normal and all that was obvious becomes threatened by his coming newness. See, unless we are willing to become uncomfortable, C4, with the status quo, unless we are in the place where we're willing to become uncomfortable, we'll never catch up with what God has already begun among us. See, at this moment in our history as a congregation, as a church family, we are continually being ushered in more and more into a time where God is doing what he promised us and what he has promised all of Durham. And our posture this morning must be this personally. And our posture as a family must be this. We must be open and flexible and willing and putting everything on the table and saying to the living God, no matter the cost to me, comfort no longer can be more important than what you want to do. God of heaven and earth, what have you had enough with? What must change? God, here's my money, here's my kids, my family, my relationships, here's my theology as I know it. Here's the seat I sit in this church every week. Here's the ministry I'm involved in. Here's this building. Lord, it's all in your hands. Lord, be honest with me. What used to be good and is no longer useful? Tell me. Lord, here is all my sin, all my secrets. Do not relent until I'm a changed person. Here, Lord, here is our church as it stands today. Do what you must. Here, Lord, here is Durham. Do what you must. See, there must be change. So many of us in our heart of hearts want change. We hunger for change, and yet the other side of us writhes against change because comfort is so strong and reassuring to us. But we as Christians know things cannot stay the same. And so the cry that we are going to walk through this morning, the dangerous, scary cry is this, O Lord, come in your glory. O Lord, come in your love. O Lord, come in your holiness. Bring the gift of uncomfortability to our church so lasting change will take place no matter the cost. Now, if there's a biblical narrative that underscores and undergirds the struggle and the wrestle between comfort and uncomfortability for the sake of God and his work and his nude expression, it is the story of Peter and Cornelius. 
If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn physically or virtually. You can navigate there to Acts 10. And by the way, I, I want all of you to have a Bible to turn there. Let's not forget before we get going this morning the life of Peter. So much of the time when we hear a sermon or we think or we read scripture, we forget the amount of change that has already taken place. Peter is one of the most prominent characters in the gospel, one wrote. He's a rough and tumbled man whose emotions got him into trouble, and he was clearly one of the favorites of Jesus. He loved him because of his big heart. His aggressiveness made Peter the natural spokesperson for the twelve, and he usually spoke before he thought he had foot and mouth disease, right? That led to embarrassment. But Jesus included Peter in the inner circle. It was Peter that got to go into the house of a guy named Jairus whose daughter had just died and he saw Jesus raise someone from the dead for the first time. Peter. It was Peter that was at the transfiguration where he saw Jesus in his heavenly glory. It was Peter at Jesus' trials that not only rejected Jesus but actually did more. As we found out this year, he blasphemed him. And he said... I don't even know you. It was Peter, after Jesus' ascension, after his, his resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus met with Peter and restores him the most. It was Peter, the grade two, probably educated Galilean fisherman, who was so filled by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, when the Spirit came, that he stood up and Peter preached the first message, the very first Christian sermon, and not one, not two, but 3,000 people converted on the spot. So much. I mean, you need to catch this today. Peter has given up so much already. He's changed so much. He's walked with Jesus. He's sacrificed his reputation, his job, his family. And yet God is going to come now in the latter part of his life. And he's going to say to Peter, Peter, I am going to do a new thing. Will you join me? Now, never forget that God's new things are not really new. God doesn't change his mind. Actually, when God comes unbelievably close to a person or a congregation, he's just reminding us that we need to follow, believe, and catch up with what he's doing, right? See, many of you here have been Christians for a long time. You've been Christians for years and decades. And you are Peter this morning. You say, I've walked with Jesus I've seen it all. I've done church for decades. I've been faithful. Yeah, I've been forgiven. I've seen every passing fad come and go. And, you know. But I want to declare to you this morning as one of your pastors that because God has chosen in his sovereignty to give this church some very specific promises and our region some very specific promises, I want to declare to you today there is something new afoot among us. There is a new yes, and the door in front of you who are long-term Christians is marked once again uncomfortable. This is not rebuke, by the way. This is an invitation by the God you've walked with longer than many of us for God to say to you, come and join me in this next season. There is no retirement in our movement. <laughs> See, you think you've seen it all. And I'm telling you this morning, no, you have not. God has decided, because he has decided, that enough is enough. 
And he's coming to do a radical new thing in Durham. And we all need to be ready when he moves. So, into the text. Acts 10.1. It says, Aria, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a centurion, part of the Italian regiment. He and his families were devout, God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need. He prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly, I love that word, he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear, and he said, what is it, Lord? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor, well, they have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So in other words, Peter's at a lovely condo by the sea. Now I want you to catch this this morning. Cornelius is a top Roman military official. He's actually an occupier of another nation, and the God of that nation has decided to choose him. And he comes and says, find this man named Peter. Now this is going to get very uncomfortable very quickly. Why? Do you know how much separates Peter and Cornelius? Pride, prejudice, faith, ethnicity, history, anger, murder, invasion, occupation, unforgiveness, just to name a few of the natural barriers that are going to cause a problem. Cornelius lives, it says, in Caesarea. You say, well, why does that matter? Oh, let me tell you why it matters this morning. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, the most hated king of the Jews. Caesarea was built so the Romans could have absolute authority in the area. It was the center of the occupation. Not only that, Caesarea was built as a showpiece for Roman culture. Jews at this moment so hated Caesarea, they did not consider it part of their nation any longer. This is the place where all the taxes ended up. This is the heart of the Roman occupation. This is the place where thousands of your relatives, if you lived back then, over different seasons, had been ordered to be crucified during the revolts. Caesarea is the place you do not go as a Jew. To go there would be radical, would be uncomfortable, would be terrifying. More non-Jews lived there than Jews. There was even a temple dedicated to Caesar in Caesarea. And isn't it so interesting? See, Caesarea is dedicated to who? Caesar Augustus. Oh, what did Caesar Augustus claim about himself? Oh, right. He claimed to be, ready everyone? The son of God and the prince of peace. Does that sound like anyone? And they worshipped Caesar on Jewish soil. But when God decides to go somewhere, he's going. The second scene unfolds like this. Not only does he prepare Cornelius on one hand, he prepares Peter on the other. You got to remember who Peter was. You don't forget, right, that Peter was a zealot. Do you know what a zealot is? He was an insurgent. Peter was part of a guerrilla group that tried murdering Romans before he met Jesus. This guy was like Al-Qaeda versus the Americans in Iraq. Like this is, you got to understand the power of this. He was involved before he met Jesus. He attempted to murder Roman soldiers. And now God has met Peter radically and is going to call Peter to go talk to this guy? Oh, you betcha he is. It's not an angel this time. It's a vision. 
It says this in Acts 10.9, about noon the following day, as the servants were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on a roof to pray. Why wouldn't you? Rooftop terrace, pretty nice. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Not because of the hunger, everyone. It's supernatural, by the way. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet was being let down to the earth by four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Translation, I'm a kosher man. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. I I just want to stop and say this is Dave Adams' life verse, just so you know. Because there is no vegetables in that sheet. And he just celebrates that he can eat all sorts of meat. And so this is a shout out to his wife. Good luck with that one. All right. Very profound. Peter's waiting for lunch. He's doing his devotions and he's suntanning. And it happens. God unexpectedly fills the atmosphere. Peter is thrown into a trance and he is given a God-ordained vision and yet the content of the vision is never, ever, ever what he would expect from the God by the way he worshipped, the God he walked with, the God he knows deeply, way more than any of us sitting here or watching online. And, And when the vision came, it made him very, very uncomfortable. It threatened everything he held. Let me say that again. It threatened everything he held ethnically and spiritually was full of animals, some fit to eat, some not fit to eat, according to Jewish law. And God says to him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says back to God, I love this, not on your life. Lord, I reject your lordship. No. Is that not the story of so many of us? God has spoken to so many of us in our community and asked you or commanded you to do something. And we say, not in, you know, in relationship even back to him, I will not do it. We hold up all the things that we value more than his command. Our comfort, our upbringing, our gender, our worldview, our ethnic background, our age, our theology as it stands, our sin, our pain, our preferences... And God comes and says, I will break apart much of what you hold because your current comfort is not more important than the work I am warmly inviting you to do. I want to re-remind you again, God has already deeply changed Peter. And God chooses to come close again. And he says to Peter, I know we've been here before, but I'm about to make you to go to an even more uncomfortable place. But you know when I move, it will lead to significance in eternal life. Peter, eat. His struggle is so strong. See, see, unclean animals could never be used for food. And even clean animals had to be killed in the right way before they could be even eaten. So he can't just kill it even in a vision state and eat it. That, that violates kosher law. It's like what you see in Muslim communities today, halal meat. It's the, it's the same mentality. And yet God shows up to Peter, says three times, you must stand and eat. And Peter says back to Jesus three times, I will not do it. Do you notice Peter argues with Jesus in threes? He always loses too, side note. I will not eat unkosher food. See, Peter isn't just worried about worship. 
Peter's scared that he's going to stop being a good Jew. Jesus, don't you understand? If we get rid of these laws too, what's left of our nation? Doesn't my ethnicity matter? And God says, not if it's blocking my work. Kill and eat, Peter. He says, why are you contradicting yourself, God? I'm not contradicting myself, God is saying. This has always been the plan. I've talked about it for millennia. You just haven't wanted it. Well, Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, verse 17. The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon the house was, and they stopped at the gate. So day one, you've got an angel showing up to a Roman centurion. Day two, a very uncomfortable vision, and suddenly the messengers show up. And now we get to day three. Day three, Peter decides to obey. But he's not doing it alone. He's taking six other guys with him. He wants witnesses. Verse 24, the following day he arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his his relatives and his close friends. Don't miss that this morning either. This man with military authority, this man with the authority to kill, this man with respect and power told not only his family, guess who would be included in this? His close family, all the slaves he owned, and his friends. He didn't need to go tell his friends about an angel. Oh, you saw an angel, did you? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Are you okay? Really? No, he says, this happened. So he gathers this whole community around him, and suddenly, what happens? There's a knock at the door, and there's Peter. It says that he entered the house, verse 25. Can you feel the tension? And Cornelius met him, and Cornelius fell at his feet in reverence. Don't miss this. Uh, Going into Caesarea was bad, but Jews were forbidden to go into a non-Jewish house. You weren't allowed to do this because that would violate your worship to God. And what happens? Peter does it anyways. And this man gets on his knees before it and actually does this in front of him. Why? Because this guy, this guy obviously is from God. And Peter freaks out. He grabs him and says, don't, don't get up. I only work for the guy. I only work for him. Great, great line to think about this morning. Peter gives us how to have that fine balance. Never treat someone like a dog. And never treat them like God, and you'll be just fine. Hmm. Peter says, get up. Get up. I'm only a man. Talking with him, verse 27, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, I love this. Well, you're really well aware that it's against our law for Jews to associate with any of you non-Jews, let alone visit them. But God. Hmm. But God has shown me that I can call no person impure or unclean. Why was it wrong for Jews to associate with non-Jews? Because they actually believed that your walk with God was affected by who you hung out with outwardly, let alone inwardly. And so if you hung out with people that worshiped Caesar or demons or didn't follow the laws right, guess what happened? God and you would be, well, not talking anymore. Peter shows up. And he goes into a hated city, and he goes into a house of an enemy. And Peter gets it. The Jewish view of the day is countermanded by the God of the Jews. 
All nations, all people can now have access back to God through Jesus and only Jesus. And so Peter says to them, why, why have you called me? And Cornelius tells him the whole story. But verse 33 is so beautiful and magnificent because he says this, now we're all here in the presence of God, listening to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Don't you notice this? Every time God moves C4, he's already prepared the path. There are thousands of people right now being prepared in Durham to meet Jesus. Trust me, he is working this out. He prepared Cornelius and he prepared Peter, just like he's preparing us and many others. Cornelius says, I am ready. Bring it. I had an angel and you had a weird vision, so what now? And Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. I now know that God will accept any person of any race. God is not a respecter of persons. God is going to lift up families from all over the earth because God does not have favorites. There is a level footing at the cross. See, it's not what you do, and it's not where you come from. It's who you trust in that gives you eternal life. See, this brings the whole Old Testament into clarity. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were good? No. Because they were righteous? No. Because he did. The living God of heaven and earth showed up and said, I'm choosing Abraham and not his dad. Why? Well, A, he wanted a covenant people, but it was deeper than this. He was choosing a people to show the rest of the world. This is what God said all the way back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 6. I, the Lord, have called you, that's Israel, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people. And, oh, notice it, a light for what? Non-Jews. Peter now gets it. This non-Jews audience is now the beginning of God's heartbeat since since Eden. He says in verse 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who's Lord over all. Peace, shalom. He says, guess what? There doesn't need to be enmity between you and God anymore. There can actually be peace between God and humanity through the work of Jesus. And I love how he says this. And realize that Jesus is Lord over all. Who claimed to be Lord over all in Caesarea? Caesar did. He's being worshipped down the street. And Peter's like, yeah, don't think so. You know what has happened through Judea, verse 37. Beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Jesus began with authority in teaching and signs and wonders to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was replacing the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God is any place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed, and Jesus is the full incarnation of that. And, and you got to catch this. Every time a demon was cast out. Every time a bleeding woman was healed, every time a leper was set free, it wasn't just for the moment. It was to demonstrate to the world that God was coming back to make things right. Every single miracle that happens in the New Testament and happens today around the world in the church is a living sign of what is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. The purpose of miracles is not just to demonstrate God's power, but to show us a foretaste of what is to come. What is to come? Let me tell you. St. John gets it right. For he will wipe away tears from our eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, pain. The old order of things has passed away. Anyone excited to get to that place? I am. 
Every miracle is to demonstrate, every demon cast out is to demonstrate that there is a new order coming, and it's under the Lord of all, because he's conquered all things. He says, we, verse 39, are witnesses to everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. But they killed him by hanging on a tree. It didn't matter what he did. He still got murdered. Now, catch the tension of this. Peter, a former zealot, is looking at a Roman military commander, who, by the way, I guarantee has ordered crucifixions himself, and says, well, my leaders and your leaders did this. He was murdered on a cross. But he's not done. Then he says, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead and caused him to be seen. He says, this is the heartbeat of the faith you're asking about, Cornelius. The proof that everything Jesus taught on is true. The claims that he was connected to. All of the healing and the deliverances he did are all legitimized. The forgiveness of sin is authenticated because he physically rose from the dead. If he did not rise, he was lunatic, liar. He was something deceived, but he was not Lord. But I am telling you, he has been raised from the dead. That is why the angel showed up in your house right now. I'm going to tell you about this. And he says, this is the power of our movement. It's what Paul said, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Jesus was not seen by all the people, verse 41, but by the witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Like, guys, we had barbecues with him. We touched him. There was 500 of us. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one who God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. We were told to go tell all people that God had given the world a second chance and relationship because of the work of Jesus. But honestly, Cornelius, I just never thought it would be someone like you. All the prophets, he says, testify about him and everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness through his name. The ideal is no longer beyond us, one wrote. The ideal is lived, and his name is Jesus. So Peter says to Cornelius and Cornelius' family, his wife, his kids, and his aunts and uncles, and the slaves that were owned in that house, and all the close friends, he's speaking to part of the elite of Roman culture. If you also, as Romans and Greeks and compromised Jews, in my opinion, he says, if you believe on Jesus, and if you believe that God rose him from the dead, and trust in Jesus' work, you also will be forgiven of your sins. And it says in verse 44, oh, I love this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. See, Peter's on a roll. He's speaking with passion, emotion, power, excitement. Suddenly, the sermon is interrupted. And God himself shows up. And the Holy Spirit lightens, comes upon that whole group, just like happened at Pentecost. And it is unbelievable. Verse 44, the Jewish witnesses, believers who had come with Peter, were astonished, jaw-dropped, that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, I love this, even on Gentiles. For they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. I mean, you got to catch this. They're going, but God, they're half-breeds. They don't even, yeah, yeah, they pray to our God. But they're not even chosen. Don't you understand? Like, God, they don't follow the Torah. The guys aren't circumcised, let's be honest. Come on. And they are stunned. When God in his sovereignty 
gives these enemies of their state and these enemies of their people the same gift. God himself fills them like they had been filled. It seemed so wrong, and yet they knew it was so right. Centuries of racism. Centuries of religious exclusivity. Because Jesus said to Peter, get uncomfortable. And he acted. Every one of you sitting in here who does not have Jewish roots, I know there are many that do, but you who do not, we are all great-grandchildren of Cornelius. Because Peter decided to obey, we sit here in C4. Don't you see the power of what God is trying to communicate to us? Peter, his response, so fantastic. He said, well, we need to baptize these people. It's time to get testimony on. So what happens? Get water. And they start baptizing them. Why? Because baptism is given to those who have already become Christians. They've now received the Spirit. They're praising the God that they all mutually know. So they baptize them in water. Baptize a Roman centurion. Can you see the power of a former zealot baptizing a Roman centurion? Can you see this? In the middle of Caesarea, God said it is enough and it is time for change. This story reflects all the facets that we need to wrestle with this morning as a community. I'm about to say to you some things that I think are so needed, and so if you're getting distracted, refocus. Dear friends, I asked you this question this morning. C4, unless we become uncomfortable again, we will not keep up with what God is already doing in us and among us. So here's the question we need to ask this morning because we're not here to play church. We're here to be changed. We're here to see the kingdom of God come to Durham because that's our assignment. What must become uncomfortable in our faith and our church to move forward with the sovereignty of God? The first is this. It could be preached in every church. Unless we continue to become uncomfortable with the full gospel, we cheat a world out of the good news which we're called to share. God does not show favorites, true, but he is very serious about who you know. God will accept anyone from any nation or background, but the distinction God does make comes down to the one he has sent. Only those who worship the one true living God found through Jesus Christ, they only can know eternal life. See, if Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, if there are no eternal consequences to rejecting or embracing Jesus, then there is no authority to speak. The gospel is neutered, and we will die as a church. There will be no motivation to tell your neighbors or your enemies or your friends about the good news because you don't really believe they're in trouble. But God spent history preparing the world for one truth, that his son is the one who can redeem not only us, but eventually all of creation back to himself. So I say to you, C4, don't ever abandon the gospel of Jesus found in Holy Scripture. But when you share it, share it with passion and gentleness and openness like Peter did. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, That whoever believes in Jesus will not die, but will have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the gospel that we carry and hold, not only in this church, but every church around the world that loves Jesus. Anglican, Baptist, Charismatic, Pentecostal, AGC, Alliance, you fill in the blank. The one thing that unites us is this Jesus and this gospel, right? We must continue to wrestle with the uncomfortable implications of the gospel. That there is only one way, and that one way is given to all, but we need to be in the place where we believe that we believe that this is true. Peter could not have walked in to that unbelievably uncomfortable situation if he did not believe this with his whole heart. This is the truth of God. Do not abandon it. It's deeper, though. Not only must we continue to wrestle with that, we must continue to wrestle with the uncomfortable mission of God, C4. Because if we do not ground ourselves in heaven's view, we will not overcome the racial, personal, and economic stumbling blocks found in every church, including ours. Ajit Fernando, who works in Sri Lanka, so rightly wrote, we must help Christians to understand the nature of Christian identity, which never depends on human distinction. When people realize they are accepted as significant, and useful to God, not because of what they do, but only by the mercy of God, then and only then will they be convicted not to look down on anyone anymore. I love this. To one who's truly understood grace, it is an impossibility to look down on anyone else. Do you see how threatening this is to you? To your mind, your thoughts? How many of you walk into a room and judge people by the color of their skin? Or how they are dressed or how they smell or look like? And yet our movement is based on the heartbeat of God that is that all family members can have access back to our Creator through His Son, Jesus. This is the grand plan of God expressed in Revelation that all nations will fall at the Lamb's feet and say, Worthy is the Lamb. So many in Durham, hear my plea, so many in Durham, so many thousands of people in this area who used to do church, seekers and skeptics are looking for the church to live up to its talk. And what could be more relevant than a changed life whose roots are founded in grace? His words swept away generations of racial and religious prejudice. So here's the question As we are praying for revival and renewal and awakening, what will rule our church see for? What will rule your inner thoughts and your views? Will it be security and acceptance based on the work and the lens of Jesus? Or will it be your own insecurity and inferiority based on your history, sin, pain, rebellion, or past? Who wins the day? It matters. I love how Paul said in Galatians 3.28, in Christ's family, there can be no division between Jew and non-Jew, slave or free, male or female. Among us, we are all equal. That is, we all have common relationship with Jesus. We have different roles, we have different gifts, we have different authority. That's not even debated. But this is the heartbeat of our movement. You want to see racism die in Durham? Preach Jesus. 
You want to see economic, dispar- uh, economic distinctions break down? Preach Jesus. You want to see revival truly begin to ebb out more than we've experienced so far? Preach Jesus and live under this worldview. How powerful, how, un- how, how unnatural, how bizarre when people who should never be friends, never love each other, never be in each other's presence, suddenly do it and say, what is with you people? And we go, oh man, I would never, only because of Jesus I hang out with this person. We must become uncomfortable with the gospel. We must become uncomfortable with our own sense of what we think is right in light of the gospel. But here's the one I really want to preach. You're like, really? I said, you know, really. See, for... We need to become uncomfortable, not for the sake of just change for change's sake. That's useless. But we have to get uncomfortable because God has decided and is moving and is doing new things. And we have a very significant thing happening among all of us right now, personally, in our connect groups, in our whole church. Which Peter will we be? Will you be the Peter that says, Surely not, Lord? And never move beyond the vision? Or will you be Peter who says, I wrestle with you, but I will obey? You say, well, John, how must I become uncomfortable? Let me tell you. Have you ever surrendered your theology to God? Have you read this story? When God gets close, freaky things happen. Angels, visions, racism. Do you want to become a part of a church like that? I don't, but I'm leading one. you got to say to God, you do whatever it has to do. You do anything you must, even if it violates my theology. Because guess what? If you truly are going to do it, it is going to bring salvation for others. So come wreck me. I'm good with it. What C4 looks like today? It's not going to look like this in two years. you got to give up what this looks like right now. Because thousands of more are coming. Let me tell you about where you sit. Do you own your seat? No. You own your place. You know what I'm talking about. You all sit in areas, right? Areas, right? Oh, you're a gym side person, an offside. You know what I'm talking Okay, it's fine, but you don't own it. Lots of people are going to start joining our church, and guess what? For the sake of the gospel, you need to be ready to give up your seat. Have you even said to Jesus, I'm willing to do that? What about where you park? I'm not going to be shuttled. Yes, you are for the sake of the gospel. You bet you you are. We're going to have to make room. No. We got a parking problem. The laws have changed. We're going to have to shuttle. And every one of us needs to get in the uncomfortable position and be a little less middle class and say, Jesus, if it allows other people to come to church, I will shuttle on a bus. No, because yeah, we clap, but in two months, I'm waiting to see it happen. We got to become uncomfortable with our theology. We got to be uncomfortable about how this place feels right now, about our seating, about where we park, what ministries you're involved in, what programs we offer. Guess what? We may not offer all the programs in the next three years we offer now. Do you hold them loosely or is it your kingdom? See, we have to have a posture as a church. Because we are praying sincerely for genuine renewal in our hearts, revival across our old church, and we're praying for thousands of people to convert to Jesus in Durham, not just in our church and others. And you think that we're going to be able to keep running church the way it is today when that's going to happen? No. The question is, where will you be and are you ready? I end my message this way this morning. I was praying this week. 
uh, for myself because I, I have this interesting responsibility as a preacher to make sure that what I preach is being worked out in my own heart before I get and share it with you. I was praying about uh, my own prejudice, my own economic stuff. I was praying uh, about our family. And as I was praying one night, the kids were asleep. That was a miracle. Uh, um, I was just taking a moment with Jesus. It wasn't one of those moments, by the way. Like Hillsong wasn't really loud and, you know, it just was normal. I was just with my laptop. And then suddenly, uh, I, I knew Jesus was close. And I, and, I, and I heard these words, and so I wrote them out on my, my iMac. And uh, I really think this is a word for our church. And so, as we always do in our church, because um, I don't usually get those for the church, uh, I've taken it to a bunch of leaders to test it. But I want to read this to you because uh, I actually got this before I finished my message. But I think this is what Jesus is saying. This is not scripture. It's for testing. But I, I would beg you all to listen so closely. Because I think this is what Jesus says to us as a church. Uh, and he says this. I will not allow C4 your prejudice. I will not allow your limitations, and I will not allow your sin. It's interesting. I will not allow your secrets. I will not allow your attempt to control, to stop what I have chosen, what I'm about to do. Am I not the Lord? Am I not the one that leads your church? Am I not the one that has elected you to you and died for you and called you and calls you? Who are you, C4, to dictate what I will then do? when I will do it, or how I will do it. I have chosen to come. I, I love this, I have chosen to break into many, many families and bring them to myself. Be ready, C4, for I will hold you responsible for when they come to you. What I love when I got this and we tested it is God's coming despite us. Isn't that good news? Yeah. What I also love about this is that God decided to do this. This isn't us conjuring something. And he's decided to break into so many families. And he's going to bring them to us. And by the way, this isn't a future thing. It's happening. Were you here at the baptisms last week? But God is going to hold us responsible when they come. Which means all of us need to get in a position where we say to God, Though I hate change, because we all do, I will posture myself to be uncomfortable if it leads to the kingdom of God coming more. So here's a very simple prayer, and then the team is just going to come. And pray it if you can. And it's just this. You guys can come if you'd like. And you online too, wherever you are, you can pray it. Lord, we admit we live in the middle class, or at least we live in an area of the middle class. And um, we like our comfort. Actually, what we fought for. And we're, actually, many of us are thankful that you're doing things in our lives we've never seen or haven't seen in a long time. 
but if I think if I was honest with you, Jesus, myself, and speaking of, uh, on behalf of many others, um, I think we are, uh, I think we're excited and terrified that you're actually going to do what you're saying. So here's our prayer. Oh God, give us the gift of uncomfortability so we will be ready when you keep doing new things. Walk into our life and keep exposing sin. Let no secret be found in this church. No hiddenness anymore as we've prayed. We pray that you would convict us and give us love for people that we don't like or don't think deserve you. And oh Lord, we pray that we would hold this church, this building, our finances, our family so loosely and say to you every day, oh Lord, what would you have me do today? The cry of so many Jesus in this church who have been Christians for so long is they want to see a real move of you. They do. They're just afraid it's another sham. Oh God, come. Prepare the Corneliuses of Durham. Prepare us as Peters. Change us. We beg, we, we beg you, change us. So many, many more can meet the Jesus who's loved us. Amen.